Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday morning here. Uh, Labor Day, actually. So I don't have college, but I have to teach later in the day. And uh, I want to see if I can get this uh, out of the way. The uh, bio for the week. Um, and I've given a bunch of names, but I see one is the Marchesha, so that's the one that attracted my interest. I don't exactly have a sponsor for today, which is too bad, but uh, I am uh, happy to say that uh, getting sponsors for my uh, lecture series that's coming up soon, History of Israel and Modern Times in the 1980s. I got a very uh, generous uh, sponsorship the other day from the Rosenberg family in New York, grateful, with the Citromax, and uh, Henry, I still remember, used to be Mishamish Rabbi Ruderman. was pretty good. Anyhow, uh, I said before, I looked around all the names, and I see one of them is uh, the Marcheshes, who they gave a day for, but they don't know what they're talking about. Sometime around now, he was murdered by the Germans, and I'll tell you later. Uh, we did, here's a very interesting story. I mean, all these stories are interesting. Otherwise, I want to pick them. At least they're interesting to me. Uh, here's somebody who was a rabbi in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I was a buddy of Chaim Meiser. <laughs> that's a, that's, you don't find that too often. Uh, and what's interesting, if you consider it, is that here's someone who personifies in his lifetime the difference between the old and the new models of governance in the Jewish communities. Uh, what I would call the aristocratic model on the one hand and the democratic model on the other. Uh, and, uh, you know, the firm world is not a democratic uh, phenomenon. It is and it isn't. But it, at least it claims that legitimacy does not derive from democracy, rather from aristocratic principles. Which is interesting, because we live in democratic countries formerly. Uh, you live in America, most of us, or I imagine most people listening to this, some sort of Anglo-Saxon type uh, situation, which case is a democracy, or Israel, which is a de democracy, which is based on the principle that the only legitimacy derives from the majority of the people. <laughs> then there's a different model, which goes back many long ago, Plato and others, which is the Hamonam doesn't understand the thing. Uh, it's the elites that have to run, and only the elites should, should elect the other elites. And the history of the rabbinate throughout Jewish history, and in the ancient times as well, uh, did the Jews run on a democratic system? No. There were elections, but elections by the elites for the elites. And uh, then things changed in the 20th century. Anyway, let's get down to business. Now, we're talking about somebody's name was Hanachanach Agus. Really, that's not the family name, but that's the name he took because it's his grandparents or whatever. And here we're talking with somebody who, at least to my mind, represents, in Lithuania, it represents the elite model, but in interesting ways. Uh, our hero was born in 1864. Nechai was born in 1863, so they're the same age. And, uh, you know, he's a... Uh, and here's a very unusual aspect of the biography. He was the son... So again, this is Chana Chenech 
Hanukkah, you know. Yeah, I know people like that. Let's call him Hanukkah. Um, Hagis. Now, his, fa- his father's name was Edelman. Uh, his father, I'll say it again, these are the aristocrats of learning in Lithuanian society. This is what's called the learned element. Uh, when I say learn, I'm talking about the old school learning, you know, Torah scholarship. But there's all kinds of Torah scholarship. And if we're talking about the 1860s, that means it's somebody who's born smack in the middle of the super hot era of the Russian Haskalah. Like the 1860s, well, I would say maximum years, 60s and 70s, of the Russian Haskalah. Now, listen closely. What is the meaning of the Haskalah? Most people, especially from these, they think like this. Oh, anybody's in Moscow is not from. That's very untrue. There certainly were many Moscow and perhaps the leading spirits who were unfrom and anti-from. That is true. But there were a ton of people who were members of Haskalah, as we would call today, or Moscow in one form or another, who were from, from as anybody else. Haskalah, I hammer home again and again. My talks, if defined, um, you know, in exact terms, if such thing is possible, simply means you're interested in more than Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. Right? Now that covers a lot of people. It could be a non-from person, and of course he's not interested in Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. Or it could be a from person, who, as I just said before, is very from, a Sharatar Mitzvah, and he learns Gamar also, all the rest of it. But he's not only interested in nothing but Gamar, you know, the truth and nothing but the truth. Learning Gamar, nothing but Gamar. Might be interested in other things as well. Could be Tanakh, could be uh, Ivrit, could be Diktok, could be, uh, you know, uh, philosophy, I mean, like, you know, Mernavuchim and uh, Kuzri and that kind of stuff. That's also a Moscow. Okay? Now, our hero was the son of such a person. Uh, his father, whose name was uh, Simcha something or other, Edelman, doesn't matter. The name was Edelman. Uh, but the names don't mean anything. I'm going to hammer this home to people. You and I live in the Western world in which when you have a name, that's your name. And your family has the same name, your kids, your grandchildren, etc., etc. That sort of becomes like a marker of your identity. If somebody today in America changes the name, which you can do, you can change your name legally in any country. Uh, it's a big deal. Until this year, we used to be called this, and then we had the name change, it was called that. It could be. But 100 years ago, especially in the Eastern Europe, the names were a lot more fluid. And a lot of people, you think you know their names, Gedolim, Katanim, all the rest of it, when you really scratch down, they were born under one name, a few years later, they were known under another name, That's it, what, what, and then later another name. It's, it's not uncommon at all. And uh, plus, living in the Tsarist Russian Empire, there was impetus to do so because you actually did not want the authorities to have good records of who you are. You get what I'm saying? Uh, because you get drafted, you get hurt, you get uh, b- b- taxed extra, clear all kind of trouble. It's actually better that the authorities don't know your exact name. So to the degree that you could try to obfuscate things. A little bit like in the spy business, where it's, a, where it's a, you know, in the interest of the spy, no one should ever know their actual name. Uh, by the way, the Russians are very, very good at that. The Russian spies. They have 15 names. You don't know ever what the real name is. That's the history of Russian espionage. So, in our case, we're dealing with somebody who was, um, as we'll see, becomes a big deal. Otherwise, we won't be talking about him. He was born in the heart of Lithuania, in Rasain. That's one of the uh, four cities, I remember, that by legend, at least, the Balshentov cursed him that no chassid would ever be there. Rasain, Karpas, Kafresh Pesamach. Uh, I remember assigned as one, and uh, I, for, I forget the others. Now, um, the uh, so you know, super misnagdish, uh, you know, type background. 
And the father was uh, a Talmud Chacham, a Gans Feiner Talmud Chacham, who was a Moscow. What do I mean when I say a Moscow? He was interested in warning Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. He knew Gemara. Matter of fact, if you know anything about the um, uh, Rambams that we use, in the back they have all these Ha'aras. Uh, so since it was published in Vilna in the 1800s, so a lot of local people put their Ha'aras, since his father put Ha'aras in the Rambam. I mean, Lamdisha stuff. But his heart was in more, um, how should I say, non gemar business. He wrote a lot of these forgotten farm today on a uh, little ephemera of Jewish history and, uh, you know, biographies, and he wrote commentaries on the Medrash Rabbah. That's, that, that's who he was. That's who he was interested in. And, um, and he had, and this father had sons, and some the sons also were, in, were like that. They also wrote these books. If you go in Hebrew books, you'll see a ton of works out there, which are not Sfarim in the sense of Gemara and all that, they're, you probably don't even realize it, you know, because you don't look at these too much. They're actually masculine works, but of the from variety. Uh, every time a bias is mentioned somewhere, you know, uh, or uh, what shall I say, themes in the Talmud, the rabbinic literature. A, a lot on the Agatha. These guys used to, the masculine very much like the Agatha. And uh, his father also was into that. The reason I mention it is that uh, it's funny that somebody... It was a Moscow, but I repeat, a from guy. We'll have a son who's the opposite of a Moscow, who's a, a super into Gamar, 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 learning, learning, learning. Uh, but that simply means that the father had his Natias, and he had several children, and our hero happened to have a natural Natia. He happened to like learning. You see? That's what turned him on. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a complaint against anybody else. And, uh, you know, you like I said before, if you want to specialize in medicine, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. If you run a be a Bucky at Tanakh. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I, myself, happened to like Shasa Poskim. You know, that, 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 that's that kind of family he was. It's, it's just interesting in that regard. Now, here's somebody, therefore, who comes, who's born in a very uh, literature town, who comes from a learned family. His father had been, was, I don't want to bore you with all the details, his father was actually married someone from Hush of Families. You understand? And you have these dynasties and family connections over there and all the rest of it. And um, our hero is going to marry into such a family, which will be very important in his life. So from 1864, he's born. Figure from 1864 to 1884, approximately. There's someone who's learning locally. Rassine, by the way, had the famous rabbi, uh, what's his name, Lapidus. Alexander Moshe Lapidus, who was the right-hand man of Israel Salanter. Uh, he was a big name. Once upon a time, there was a signer of one of the Gedolim in uh, Lithuania back in the 1800s. Not so well known today. Uh, actually, has a Baltimore connection. People don't notice. His daughter married the first rabbi of the German shul here, of the Sheriff of Israel. They actually got married in Baltimore. But anyway, which is funny that a Litvish, a his daughter wants to marry a guy who's more modern, was a graduate of Hildesheimer Seminary. But be that as it may, uh, so our hero ended up learning in the usual places, as we would say today. Uh, I remember he learned in Brisk for a while by the Beis Halevi, and this one, and, new, and you know, they're all related, they're friends. He was in, he was in uh, Voloshin for a while, and, uh, you know, I would say that he spent the first 30 years of his life just learning, 
And like I said, he took to it naturally. And he married the right girl. That is to say, somebody who's uh, Zabratonsky. You know, I, mean, I know these names don't mean anything. But he married a girl who was the granddaughter of one of the big Rabbanim in, in Vilna. Now, our hero was going to spend a lot of his time in Vilna. Vilna is one of the most important cities, I think you know that. And especially in the 1800s, had a very large Jewish population. And uh, famous, and the Vilna Gom was there in the 1700s. It's very famous that uh, Vilna was a highly organized community with a large number of what we would, would say, Chashav Balabatim, rich people and that sort of thing. And uh, once upon a time, the rich people were all from, by the time you get to the late 1800s, it's 50-50. A very traditionalist atmosphere. And the Balabatim, who have the money, are almost all of the Maskil variety. In other words, there's nobody just Gemar, Gemar, Gemar from the Balabatim side. Now, uh, people don't notice. I would say, personally, the Vilna was probably the headquarters of the Haskalah. People don't usually think of it that way, but it was. It, that's not all it was. They also had yeshivas, and they had plenty of frumis, and gemar, 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 guys. They certainly did. But at the same time, Vilna would be uh, a dangerous place, a place where a lot of musculum and a person could get into the Haskalah big time. I'm talking about the left-wing Haskalah. That's what Vilna was. Major center of Hebrew culture. It's also... Other things, you know, the Marxists, the Bundists, this, that, and the other, there were. But Vilna was like that. Now, Vilna had a... A lot of people know this, but they don't know why. Vilna did not have a raw for now based in, in the 1800s. That's because in the 1700s, there was a big scandal. A guy, a rich guy, stuck his son-in-law in to be the raw, and it was a big fight. In other words, he was not what we, call, what we call today a consensus candidate, but rather one party, one over the other. In the Cahillas of old, if the candidate of one party, one of the candidate of the other, there was a bitter election, then the, the losers would never reconcile. This is how it went in Eastern Europe, and in Central Europe also. So the rabbinate was a political office. It's not supposed to be, but that's what it is. And it's very famous, Shmuel Benavigdor was his name. And so, um, when this rabbi was pushed in, that he should be, back in the old days of the kingdom of Poland, that should be the official rub, the Abbasin of Vilna. So there was a lot of pushback. And the bottom line is that the, you know, that the opposing party found reasons to have, try to get him fired. And it was a big scandal because uh, it raged for decades. You hear what I said, decades, this fight. And uh, they couldn't solve it in Abbasin. And uh, they even took it to the Geisha courts. So I mean, you can't imagine a bigger Chalashem. Vilna, the number one city in Eastern Europe, the headquarters of Torah, Blah, blah, blah. All which is true. And they, they're so fighting with each other over whether this guy is qualified to be the robber or not that they took it to a Geisha court, to Erkos. Right? The Vilnagon was sucked into this fight. It was a big mess. And it left such a bad taste that when the guy finally died, like in the 1790s or something like that, uh, they sort of, it, was, it was sort of like, uh, we're not going to have this again. We won't have an election anymore for an Abbasin, for, for a chief rabbi. You know, communal rabbi. But instead, just have the basin. <laughs> you know, who won't have the basin, have the basin. And you have people who function. Let me put it this way. So you'll have a basin. I'm giving the inside story. And, you know, it'll be X number of Dayanim. This Dayan will be the guy who specializes in the Gitin. And that guy will be the Dayan who specializes in the Kasher stuff. The other Dayan will be the guy who specializes in the Chavis and the Chosha Mishpat stuff. Another guy will handle the Erev or whatever. You know, they, they, they divided it up that way. 
Then they had various titles, Marit Sedek and uh, and Magen Masharim and so on and so forth. And uh, that's the way they're in it. Now, uh, in the eight, it, side by side, I don't know if I mentioned this word. I must have. I don't remember what I said already. Vilna was a very interesting and very organized community back since the 1500s. And so they had what we would, you and I would call today a Jewish federation. I'm serious. Back already in the 1500s, they had like a federation. And the federation, like in America, in these places, in Baltimore, they called the Associated. And the federation is there to bring under one roof all the different um, organizations of the community. So it would be, you know, the Hachnasas Kal, I mean, the, um, the, the hospital and the cemetery and the synagogues and the poor funds. And uh, I don't know, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? The Malbushim Roman Society, all the, all the sorts of uh, of uh, vads and uh, chevras that you have in the chevra kedisha, of course, would be organized all under the aegis of this one federation, and they would raise money centrally from all the people in Vilna. Would all go to this federation, and the federation would divvy it out by the board of directors. You know, same that that's how that's how they did it. There weren't too many places like that. Vilna had this for a long, long time. The name of the federation in Vilna was called Sadaka Gadola. That's not meaning the big charity. That's the name of the Associated Jewish Charities of Vilna. And uh, in the 1800s, uh, when the uh, formal autonomy of the Kehilla as a separate independent uh, unit was uh, eliminated by the Tsarist government called Nicholas I, Nikolai I, who big anti Semite, see who's Mavatel, the uh, autonomy of the Jewish community, so the Tzedakah Gadol really ran the community. There was a very interesting and organized kind of situation, and in the 1800s, there still was a lot of traditionalism, as I for. So a Balabas, whether he was very firm or not, still, I mean, let's put it this way, in Vilna, you didn't really go around being Mechal shops in public, even if you believe it and believe this stuff, you know. I know what you did exactly in your house. You're rather like a cow. So the um, educated elite class was, uh, you know, uh, lukewarm, shall we put it this way, by and large. There's exceptions, but by and large. And uh, anyway, this was the fascinating world of the Vilna. Now, that was a leading community. There used to be, therefore, X number of famous Talmud Chachamim who served at, on these basins. You understand? I won't go through all the names. Shlomo Cohen, this one, that, the other one. And our hero, Rechanech uh, Egis, he married the granddaughter of somebody who was one of the uh, Dians, I guess you'd say, in, um, in what do you call it, in Vilna, Shmuel uh, Lubcher, and uh, who was the head of uh, a particular kolel. There was this rich, <laughs> there's a famous story in Vilna in the 1800s. There was this guy who went from rags to riches, Yudel Apatov, back in the day. And uh, what do you call a parvenu, nouveau riche. You know what I'm saying? He was, came from nothing. And I tell you again, this was aristocratic society. This is, uh, you know, the Russian Empire had no democracy. The Jewish communities had no democracy. The Russian Empire was run by an elite. The, uh, the Tsarist elite, the Jewish communities were run by an elite. And uh, uh, there was a, but how do you get elite? Well, you're born in the right family, you have money, and this and that and the other. What if you happen to get rich yourself? So there was a famous guy, Apatov, and he, uh, had, he couldn't read, he couldn't write, but he made a lot of money somehow or other, and then they had to put him on the board, and they didn't like him, and there are many stories about it. He's the guy who was always in the Mutka Chabad stories, the famous uh, uh, jokester, humorist of yesteryear. And uh, 
Sapatov, who was a nouveau riche, he wanted to um, impress everybody. So he built his own shul, so he could be the kavai, and he built his own kolel, so he could be I'm, a, I'm, I'm patron of a kolel. So there was a kolel there. I mean, for guys sitting and learning. And uh, so it's just interesting that the, uh, what do you call it? That uh, the, the uh, grandfather of the girl he married was, you know, the head of that kolel. Now, uh, why am I going through all this? Well, give us, he's born in 1864. So give, for a long time, this is a guy, our hero, who just liked to sit and learn. That's a teva. Um, I don't think any hard challenges in the first day of his life. Things came his natural way. Now, I'm saying that for a reason. Uh, and again, whenever I do these talks, I'm just giving my opinion. I could be wrong, I'm just giving my opinion. But it's very interesting that since he had no hard challenges and things naturally came his way easily, he didn't develop into what I would call a strong character, a fighter, or anything like that. The opposite. You give a guy like this, uh, today, he'd be somebody who could sit and learn in Kola in Israel, you know, in Mir or one of these places, forever, and be totally happy. I mean, learn up a storm, totally happy. He's not out to make fights, he's not out to climb any ladders, he's not out to, you know, to, for, for personal covenant and all the rest of it. It's not necessary. This was his teva. At the end, uh, he was a very big Talmud Chacham. And uh, in 1898, when he was 34 years old, the, the grandfather died. His wife's grandfather died. Which means that there's now a vacancy on the basin in Vilna. Now, the way it works in aristocratic societies, right or wrong, is that usually they keep these things in the family. A lot of times that in Eastern Europe like that. They're Shilas, by the way. This famous Shilas. Is, is a son automatically supposed to succeed the father in the Rabbanus, or is there more of a democratic process that people get to vote? And, you know, naturally, some famous rabbis, some sober said, the son has the right to be Yorish uh, family. That's what happened in Pressburg, right? No, they say not. You know, back and forth. But in Vilna, with this kind of uh, old boy network, type of world, if you were in the right place at the right time and somebody dies, you're the Yorish. And that's what happened to him. That's what happened to him. It's interesting. So notice, I'll say it again. There was somebody who was a dying in Vilna. He had a son-in-law who was a Mos- from Moscow. So he was a guns fine at Tamakachan, but he wasn't like that. But he had, but the son-in-law had a son. Uh, one son. Henechegis, who had been spending 34 years learning up a storm. He's a Barhachig. Until he became a dying. You get what I'm saying? He was elected because to succeed his, his, his you know, the family office of the wife's uh, grandfather. But he was a Barhachi. So from then on for the rest of his life, he had a job. From 1898 till, till the Second World War, which is 40-some years, 42, 43 years. Um, he was on the basin of Vilna. That's who he was. Now, um, if that's all it was, it wouldn't be so interesting a story, but that's what it was. It so happened that another person who came on the basin around the same time through the same methods, Chaim Isaac Grzynski. So, I don't know if they knew each other before, but they certainly knew each other now. And these two were the two main guys on the basin of Vilna who, who helped make it famous. Now, Chaim is much bigger. That's a fact. But our hero did not mind being in the shadow of a bigger person. And I told you before, he wasn't a fighter, he never said strong teva. He was interested in sitting and learning 
and now being a Dayan and all the rest of it, being, you know, totally uh, immersed in the world of Torah, this what turned him on. And uh, he wasn't a person covered or anything like that. And it's clear that, you know, he saw that his... So they were buddies, you understand? They were buddies, they were good friends, very close friends. And uh, there's plenty of work to fight to hold up the cause of Torah in, in Vilna and elsewhere, and there's plenty of non from things to worry about. And he did not mean not mind being number two. So I'll say it again, the Mahesh was a gonadir, but he was Ramchai Miser. Okay, no problem. You know, not everybody's Moshe Abedu, not everybody's Vilna Gon. It's not a problem. You know, there's a place for Yeshua Benun also. So this is interesting that for, because it is, there was harmony on the basin of Vilna, which they needed for the next 40 years. And I'm sure everybody appreciated that on, on the basin. There are other Dianim as well. And some of the other Dianim were a little more, uh, hmm, what shall I say, um, politically minded and uh, maybe a little jealous and all the rest of it. Uh, who is it? Uh, Chaim Grada writes about this in, in his novels. But the two leading people that I just mentioned were Chaim Rezegrzynski, who was just a Dianim in his own. That's all he was. He was not the Rav. Not officially. No. And uh, the Macheshes were two two of the colleagues on the base in, in Vilna. Now, 1898, so give me the first period, 1890-1914, until the First World War was uh, 200 Tsarist Russia, 16 years. Um, Vilna is part of Russia, under the Tsarist Empire. Um, that was tough enough. We're starting in a period when uh, you have the rise of these left-wing movements. I'm talking about a secular Zionism, not religious Zionism. I'm talking about um, the Bundists, who were militantly anti-religious. I'm talking about the Marxists, the, 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 the Mamish, the communists, and, and, and so forth. You know, it was, it was quite a, a period of storm and stress. There was a revolution in Russia in 1905, which failed, but was, made a whole storm. There was anti-Semitism and pogroms and stuff like that. It was quite a time to be. And our hero was a rabbi, uh, a Dayan, on the basin of Vilna, Think about that, um, you know, for these 16 years. And um, one of, this is very, very traditional. What do you do um, to fight against all these non-from things? The period I just described, the 16 years prior to the First World War, is the period when the uh, Frumis started to create what you and I would call today the modern yeshiva movement as an anti-modern and anti-left-wing phenomenon. No, this is when the Litvish Yeshivas as a movement really started. There's a self-conscious movement. That they're in self-conscious opposition to the prevailing trends in the society, and they're offering an alternative model. And Rechaim Meiser and our hero are, you know, part of that. And uh, this is when Rechaim Meiser himself set up what he called kibbutz. Now, kibbutz doesn't mean a collective form. Kibbutz means, or kibbutz as they're called, a kibbutz... Uh, which is a term they used to use, they don't see it anymore. The kibbutz, in some sense, I'm talking about is elite kolel, as we would call today. Right? By the way, you didn't have to be married, but that's, you know what I'm saying, elite kolel. And that is the best guys from the yeshivas will come and learn with Chaim Meiser. Listen, why not? And when you come learn with Chaim Meiser, you also learn with Panachegas. Because they're both in Vilna, and they're both, you know, super lamdans. Uh, that's an understatement. And uh, many of the famous names who became big rabbis in the 20th century, came up through the kibbutz uh, that I'm talking about, that were run by these two men, by Chaim Meiser and by uh, Hanachegis. Okay? 
Uh, just off the top of my head, I mean, you know, I remember Blazer Silver was uh, famous for being part of that. The one that was ended up in Cincinnati. Ashmole Hillman, the one that's in London. And many, you know, Rabbi Meal, many uh, biggies, you know. Now, let's put it this way. You tell me what kind of a guy in 1905 or 1910 is going to already be in Yeshiva and then go to Vilna to learn the super deep lumbus with uh, Chaim Meiser and the Nemarchesha and Hanachegis. You can put it yourself. I remember that. He, now here, here comes something very, very interesting. The two men, the two buddies, did not see eye to eye in politics. Rabbi Chaim was against the Mizrahi. Rabbi was in the Mizrahi. Rabbi believed in Zionism, religious Zionism, obviously, not the nun from, uh, of course. Rabbi um, Chaim during these sixteen years. He made the Agudah. If you want to know who really, really, really created the Agudah, it was Rechaim Meiser, behind the scenes. His whole table was to work behind the scenes. He was the one who came in 1909 to that special conference in, um, in Germany, and he was there, you know, in the, in the Katowice conference, all the stuff. Now, what was the Agudah? The Agudah was to provide an alternative to the Mizrahi, and particularly to the Zionist movement. You understand? Let me explain very briefly, not get off on a tangent. The Zionist movement was extraordinary. For the first time, right? for the first time ever, they got together, Herzl, I'm talking about 1997, they got together uh, a, a Congress which were represented, at least, at least it looked like, I mean, it was a fake, but it looked like it represented delegates from the entire Kali Uh This is how Cedar Herzl set it up. They had delegates from America, from Germany, of course, from England, from France, from Russia, from Hungary, you name it. From the smarter... And they all got together and constituted themselves the first Zionist Congress. And they had the second Zionist Congress, the third one. And what they said was, we are Klal Yisrael. We represent the Jewish people. That's a lie. There were no elections or anything like that. You want to know something? It didn't matter. It took everybody's breath away. At the beginning, people thought it stupid. But when they saw the Goyim took it seriously, at countries in Europe, real countries... Negotiated with Herzl, like he's Mamish, the head of the Jewish people, you know. So, what they say is a bluff turned out it worked. And what it meant was the Zionists showed that it's possible to do something that no one had ever tried to do before in thousands of years, which is get together representatives of the whole Klai Yisrael and be Metakis Eitzah, how to improve the Matzah of Klai Yisrael. Now, there's no reason that the Frum never did this, but they never did it. <laughs> you see? In all these centuries, there never was a time, now maybe they were afraid of the going, whatever. There never was a time when all the firm in different countries got together and said like this. Uh, you know, let's get together and see if we can discuss the matzah of Klal Yisrael. Instead, everybody just talked about their own Dalai Germany, they concerned the German Jews. In Lithuania, they concerned the Lithuanian Jews. The Hasidim concerned the Hasidic stuff. The Sephardim concerned the Sephardic stuff. Now, I get that, but... Let me put it this way. Perhaps in earlier centuries, perhaps, you might argue that it was very difficult, if not impossible, because of the difficulties of travel and, uh, you know, communications, all the rest of it. But by the time you get to the 1800s, uh, travel has been radically simplified. Uh, now you have the, the railroad, the telegraph, the, the steamboat, and so forth. The Frum could have done this in 1860, you know what I mean? 1850. Why didn't they? Nobody thought with that with that grand vision. It's a fact. 
It was a non from guy, Herzl, who was totally divorced from Yiddishkeit, who had that grand vision. That's interesting. And like I said before, though people made fun of the Zionist movement, the guy took it seriously. Germany, England, you know, England offered Herzl, you know, I know you know this, England offered Herzl Uganda. That's crazy. What I mean is, they actually offered him a shtickel karka from the world, took a, p- a piece of the earth to, as a Jewish state. You know, that, that, that's amazing. Even though it's in Africa, and all, I mean, I get that. But still, that they took this group who you and I know didn't really represent anybody, right? You know, the, 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 the Zionism was a bluff. They said, we, are, we have delegates that represent the Jews of Russia, Jews of Hungary. They never took a vote or anything like that. It didn't matter. You see that they captured imagination. Now, the reason I'm mentioning it is because a lot of people were caught up in this. This is where the Zionists came from. And this is, uh, uh, you know, and this is why the religious made the Mizrahi back in 1902. Because they said, this is, a, you know, if there's going to be gatherings of Israel in one form or another to discuss the massive of Israel, which is something that should have been long ago, uh, there should be a firm representation there. So the Aguda was created as an anti-Zionist movement. By that I mean a Kenegid. Let's put it this way. You don't represent Kalei We, the firm, represent Kalei And we should have a gathering of representatives from all the firm Kalei You know what I mean? The firm German Jews, the firm Russian Jews, the firm Hungarian Jews, the firm Western Jews, and so on and so forth. So the Aguda Israel was created to be the, shall I say, the replacement is that a good word? Of the Zionist movement. Uh, and Rechaim is the one who did it. And all of his life he was committed to that. Whereas the Marchesh, the Chanach Egis, was in the Mizrahi. Uh, so it's just interesting that they didn't agree on everything, but they were close to friends. They're close to friends. And so that's really amazing. Uh, because, you know, in a lot of places, politics would, would cure everything. Look in America. I'm speaking now in September of 2020. Trump... And Biden, that divides everybody. If you're pro-Trump, the other guy wants to put you in harem, or vice versa. If you're against Trump, I'll put you in harem. The, same, the politics dominates all relationships. This is a famous uh, zach now in, in, in the United States. Uh, is it possible for one guy to say, oh, yes, I like Trump, and the other guy say, I hate Trump, but let's be friends anyway, because we agree on a lot of other things. You don't find that in my experience too often. And here you have two people that, that disagree very strongly in politics, uh, and yet, we're the closest of colleagues in every sense of the word. Right? It's just interesting. Now, and I remember, Chaim Meiser liked to work behind the scenes. That's who he was. So I don't think he was a denying... I mean, could be wrong. They had this famous conference that I mentioned some time ago. They had the rabbinical conference that that professor wrote about. Marriage and Divorce in Imperial Russia. I forget her name. And uh, to discuss what we would call rabbinic problems in Russia and uh, the was on, on, on there as representing Vilna. It's very like Heimreiser, you know, get somebody else to be the front man. But anyway, uh, that takes you down to the First World War. First World War was terrible. Right? I know the Second World War was worse, I, uh, obviously, but First World War was terrible. I did a series, if you go on my uh, YouTube uh, channel, you'll see, last year I think it was, about the experience of the Orthodox Jews during World War I, which was a, which was a uh, catastrophe, but it was not a Holocaust. And Vilna took it on the chin. I don't want to go through all the details, but Vilna was not far from the front lines. The Germans conquered Vilna in, in 1915 already, fairly early in the war. Chaim Meiser from day one 
or early on, right after the war, fled Vilna. This is very famous and, and notorious and controversial because he was on a hit list. The Russians were, understand this well, Vilna was part of the Russian Empire. The Russians regarded the Jews in the Russian Empire as a fifth column, as an enemy, particularly the Jews living in Lithuania. Different Russian army, even though it's their own countrymen, behaved very brutally towards the Jews in these areas, including Vilna. And uh, they had plans. This is so Russian that when war breaks out, they're going to take hostages. And if the Jews do anything the slightest bit, they'll shoot the hostages. And Chaim was on the list because he's Chashev, you know, to be one of the hostages. So when the war broke out, he more or less got the heck out of there and he ran away to the interior of Russia because Russia is so bureaucratically confused. This before Stalin, when everything got very organized, you couldn't run away. But at that time, you could run away from one part of the country to the other. Then he spent the rest of the war in, in Minsk and uh, in Ukraine and places like that. So the bottom line is, if you were living in Vilna from 1914 to 1918, there's no Khan Meiser. And he was the leading personality on the basin, so therefore he was unofficially the Rav, shall we say? Unofficially. And, um, uh, but Rav Khan Heges stayed. And the years 1914 were very tough years. Uh, with starvation, and then the Germans occupied, and then, uh, you know, the, the poverty. And the city was filled with all kinds of refugees. I think I may have mentioned this. Um, the official rabbi, the Rav Mitam, was a from guy, Yitzhak Rubinstein. Lukhan Meiser put him in. We're dealing here with the Russian Empire. I know you know this. I mean, I've mentioned it many times. The Russian Empire had a screwball system. Already in the 1800s, the Russian government insisted that the rabbi should be modern Orthodox. That's what they insisted. The, the, the from didn't want modern Orthodox. Now, the definition of modern Orthodox means... You have some kind of a college degree, or at least a high school degree, okay, or a gymnasium degree, something like that. Let's say a BA. You have something along the lines of a BA to show that you're secular. Now, the czarist government wanted that ostensibly, so that the rabbi would ha- would be a modern, civilized European type guy. Really, 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 they wanted a less from guy, so that they could eventually use him as a pawn and to uh, screw over the Jewish religion. You know, that's who because the, the, the czarist government was was wicked. And the Rabbanim, as a class, and the Frum, the Frumis as a class, resisted that, and they said, no, we don't, we don't go on a rabbi with no uh, secular education, the Kulo Torah. And neither would give in, and so the government insisted that every Kehillah, if they had a rabbi, should employ a guy with some kind of secular education, and the Frum wouldn't do it. And so the end is, you had two rabbis in every community, an official rabbi and the unofficial rabbi. So in Vilna, there's always a question: Who should be the unofficial? Who will be official rabbi? Be unofficial rabbi? Now, earlier, they used to get losers, Badafka. So in the 1800s, if you want to know who was the official rabbi in Vilna, there was some guy who was a pharmacist, and another guy who was a you know this or that. And the idea was it's a joke, but he had official responsibilities in Russia. They had the metric books. The, he registers the births and the deaths and the marriages and that kind of stuff. No, he was a government bureaucrat among other things, and he had to swear that the records were right. And, um, you know, let me put it this way. If you're a Talmud Chacham or a Ben Torah of any sort, then you say like this, this official rabbi, that's a joke and a half, right? But if you're a regular Balabas, even in America today, oh, the guy's a rabbi, you know? I mean, <laughs> he has ordination, right? And they give him respect. And Rabban didn't like this. And so... The history of the Rav Mitam, as they call it, went through different phases. 
by the time you get to the early 20th century, they saw that the public out there, the Hamon Am, looks at these people as some kind of rabbis. And so to make a long story short, in the case of Vilna, back in 1905, I think, or something like that, uh, when it came time to elect the Rav Mitam, Rav Chaim Meiser, who I repeat, always worked from behind the scenes. So, uh, and Rav Chaim Meiser didn't have any secular education. So he said, I'm going to get a guy who's more reliable. And he got this Yitzhak Rubenstein, who was in um, uh, in Slobodka. Yeah, he knew how to, you know, obviously he knew how to learn. Slobodka in the time of the altar. But somehow or other, I don't know how he did it. <laughs> he got a law degree at the University of Moscow. I don't know how you pulled that off. That's like saying a guy's going to, uh, oh, what shall I say? There is, not even a good example. A, a guy's going to Lakewood, but he also finished Harvard Law School. Because University of Moscow Law School is like that. I know how you pull that off. Um, unless the altar, you know, let him do it or turned his eye away. I, I just don't know. And he married this lady. I think I spoke about her once. Esther Rubenstein. A very hush of a uh, And so the bottom line was he was a, a, he was a from guy. And he was a Talmud Chacham. He was a Talmud Chacham. He couldn't even pass Gashah. He could. And uh, a good speaker. And he could speak Russian because he finished law school. And so, he should be the Rav Mitam. That way, it's, so to speak, in, in safe hands. Get it? It won't be used to go anything against the firm the Rabbanim because he followed orders. Beats a grievance. So from 1905 to 1914, whatever Chaim told him to do behind the scenes, he did. That's his job. So he had a chol, the court chol they call it. Every community in Europe had to look at by relative terms, we call them an Orthodox shul. I myself was in that shul. That's the only shul left in Vilna today. Uh, it was. It's ironic. All the front shul destroyed. The one that's left was the least from. Although it was ortho, it was one hundred percent Orthodox, one hundred fifty percent. But you know they had a choir and a and a, and a, and a chas and, and a this and the, the rich balabatim went there. Notice the element was not so from, but formerly it was one hundred percent from shul. And he would have, he would give a sermon and all that stuff and uh, but again it was all under the control shall we say of Chaim Reiser. but then Chaim Reiser is not there and it's 1914-1918 he got the Russian army he wants to kill Jews then the German army and this and that and the other and this the uh, disagreement uh, uh, flourished because he worked with the authorities and he did a lot to save the Jews and he got a lot of people out of the drift. They got a lot of people saved their lives from being shot by the Russians, and there's many stories. And so he got a personal popularity in there. Our hero, the Rochenachegas, remained with him, and he manned the basin. So here's somebody who, from 1914 1918, our hero, is the Rosh Basin, because Rochan is away, and um, uh, not trying to take his place, but by, def- by default, nobody's there. Away, and he had to, just you tell me what kind of shallows the basin had to deal with under World War One conditions, uh, the worst shallows in the world, which means you really got to be a Pisic. And um, I don't know the relationship to him and the official rabbi, they got along. And all I can say is that when the war was over, so Bhaimizer returned, and uh Hegel said, Oh, yes, fine, go back to being number one. I told you that was his teva, no problem. With big number two, Chaim Meiser. No, no, they were good friends. Uh, during the First World War, there was a short period when they had what they called the Russian Revolution. In 1917, in March, they overthrew the Tsar, 
and um, people actually dreamed there would be a democracy. I'm serious. And there was even a uh, short period, say from March to late November in 1917, when they spoke about um, having a real democracy and votes for a national parliament, a constituent assembly in Russia. And when that happened, a thousand political parties formed. And by the way, the Zionists, I'm talking about the non-from, formed their parties, and they'll get the Jewish vote. And so the from uh, formed their parties, and they said, I'm talking about the Chavetz Chaim, Chaim everybody, all the big people, and they said, we have to ha have a party that unites together the Mizrahi and the Agurah. Because at the end of the day, what, what we have in common in 1917 is more important than what we have not in common. And Penachega was a big part of this. It was called Achdus Party. That was what it was supposed to be. You understand? People like the Chavetz Chaim, we don't think of them like that. Went around organizing and going to Moscow and things like that. It's very interesting. Uh, now, it didn't happen, because in November, the, the communists took over, and that's the end of democracy. <laughs> that's the end of that. Um, but, you see, uh, I know that he was very uh, blown away by the Balfour Declaration, because it's, it's weird. The same month that the communists took over, that's the same month that Britain said, we're going to give Israel to the Jewish people as a Jewish state, which shocked everybody. Like, wow. You understand? In other words, it's Yemosa Mashiach. A real country like England, the British Empire, who's winning the... First World War, and is about to take over Eretz Yisrael. As a matter of fact, by November 1917, they had occupied a good part of Palestine. In December, they took Jerusalem, uh, General Allenby. So, uh, and they said, we're going to make this a Jewish state. Now, you and I know it turned out a lot more complicated, but I'm talking about if you were Jew, especially Jew in Eastern Europe in 19, in November, December 19, and you heard Britain and America and these countries are promising Eretz Yisrael to the Jewish people, it's your Muslim Mashiach, <laughs> right? So he was swept away by all this. But after the war, the um, Chaim Moser returned, but Vilna went through a crazy time because there were all these post-World War I wars that I mentioned here, I think, the other day. World War I lasted another four years in Eastern Europe, Vilna being an exact example I'm talking about. There were wars between the Poles and the Lithuanians, between the Poles and the Soviets, the, the white Russians and the, and the, um, and the Poles. Uh, the Latvians got involved. And a, it was crazy. Vilna was occupied, reoccupied, occupied, reoccupied. And by the time it's over, it was, uh, it was taken over by Polish army. And from, from the then one, from 1919, so 1920, until, 19, until Hitler was under Poland. So Vilna is actually a Lithuanian city, but it was taken away from Lithuania by Poland. And this is the way it was held for the next 20 years. So for our hero, these years now, now he's 60 years old, well, he's in his late 50s. He's born in 1864, so in 1920, he's like 56. So uh, these last 20 years of his life, from the age of 56 to 76, I guess, whatever, these are the years um, that, uh, you know, that he was very active. And, uh, and, and therefore, the basin of Vilna was, was Heimweiser and him and, and some others. Uh, now, what's really interesting is that during this whole period I'm talking about, and especially in the 20s and 30s, these are the years of the Litvish Yeshivas, right there that you hear about. These are the quote-unquote golden years, shall we say, of the uh, Litvish Torah world. Yeah, I had to stop for a minute. Uh, I think I was saying that uh, in the time that we're talking about, I spoke about the heroic era of the Litvish Yeshivas, shall I say. It's, you know and I know that the Yeshivas at that time 
began producing Darchi Alimud. I'm speaking about Brisk, B'Shem people like that. And certain Darchi Alimud. And they became, you know, very hardwired. Telder Darch. Very hardwired into the world of learning of the, uh, especially, I would say, from 1900 to 1940. You know, it's often remarked upon. You know how to learn if you don't understand, you know, how to do it in a brisk way, for example, or something like that. But our hero is a very interesting. Given the time he was born and where he lived, uh, he was in Volosh in the 1880s. So he was there when Rechaim Brisker was uh, a Magashir. He was a little older. He's like five years younger than Rechaim. Uh, but he wasn't uh, influenced by him in his style of learning. Clearly, he's from the old school where you learn straight, especially you have the Bikiyas in all of the Shas and the Rishonim. I mean, real Bikiyas. And uh, and then you use that to construct your your Ian, as we say today. And remember, he's also, by definition, he's a Dayan. So he's going to have a certain Mahalach in learning, focused on the Halacha. He's a Dayan, plus the Lamdas. And so, by definition, that's not the type of person who will be... Uh, uh, would give a shear of a typical type in the 1920s or 30s in a Lithuanian yeshiva. Now, uh, these are subtle points that I guess many of the people listening to this probably understand. A lot of the public does not understand. Uh, I'm only mentioned for the following reason. <clears throat> in um, in these years, he began to assemble his his uh, chidushim and tshuvas, uh, not exactly, his, his writings, um, for publication, which he did in the 1930s, 1930 and 35, which put his name on the map. Uh, but this is when he uh, started putting it together. He has a, he published first in 1930, Now, uh, which became a super uh, a safer, and still is. And um, he has a very interesting um, introduction, a fascinating introduction, which is not unknown at all. And I just want to read you, the because it's so interesting historically, read you the first uh, part of it. It's just very, very interesting, because he's a person who's a gone out here. You hear from everything I told you before, you can imagine who he is in terms of learning. Uh, he's number two to Chaim Meiser on the basis of Vilna, give me a break. right? And I repeat, the two of them ran together for many years, that kibbutz. Okay, that super kolel. So you just tell me, Tell him at the top, top level of learning. But he knows that when he publishes the Chedushim, they're not in the accepted yeshiva style. I'm going to read you to it, because I find it fascinating. And he quotes from the very beginning from uh, a famous passage in the Gemara where it says, Kisolik Rababa, Amar Yehi Rabbid Ema Milsadiskaba, which means that Rababa, an Amora, when he moved from Bubble to Israel, so here's somebody who was a big deal in Bavel, but now he's coming to Israel. He said, "Yehi Rabba Milsa He wrote in Shomer Dvar I hope that I'll be uh, able to say a Dvar in Israel that'll be acceptable. Meaning, I hope I won't be embarrassed when I get to Israel. What does that mean? I mean, it's an The poly. So he quotes by saying he starts with that. Uh, this is the introduction of Marcheshes. He starts with that. Um, quote, and he says, V'polyefo, this is remarkable, Halotfilzug, Tsukhashikov, Fikotam, Chachem, and Sumra, Banish Nikas, the basement, and she wrote, and she coached by Aloha. It feels Nikhin Benakona. If it's just a, a pious phrase, 
Oh, so I mean, anybody should say that. Why is it more say, did this guy say it in this particular time? So, uh, why is he say it when he, Kisolik, when he moved from A to B, like we would say today, when he moved from Europe to America, you know, or America to Israel. Why did he say, and here's his explanation, very nice. That there are different types of darchi limud out there. And it depends on the country. The Sephardim learn in a certain way. Now he's writing this in 1930. The Sephardim write in a certain way. Dashkanaz in a certain way. The Gedolim in, uh, you know what I mean, in France did one way. You know, you know like that. Ubefrat darchi halimud and he says that back in the time of the Amorim, and we know this from various places in the Gemara. Remember, Abzeir said he's going to fast to forget the learning that he had in Bubble to get used to the Israeli system. You, you know this. So again, fascinating. Now, Rababa back in Bavel was a big shot. He was a big learner over there. For Ismichi Gavra, Bisri Kamiya. He was well known. Tuftam Badaito, Das Torahalikosa, Bikodesh, Digmar Svara. For Hai Yodea, Kidvar Miskama, Lev Talmidim, Chachamim, Shebiro. So back in Bavel, where he was a native, he was a renowned rabbi, Rosh Hashiva, Magashir, and he knew that he knows always how to hit a home run with his audience in Bavel. Umotim Chene, Benechavir Makshi Lecho. But if he moves to a different place where the style of learning is different and the in way of being masber things is different, maybe it won't go over. Maybe he'll. So he's a winner in Bavel, but he's afraid when he gets to Israel, he'll, be, he'll look like a loser. I didn't say he is a loser. He said he's afraid he'll look like a loser. That's why David, that I hope I'll be a winner in Israel, meaning I know my Torah is going in Bavel, but maybe the style is so different in Israel, it won't go over well. I hope you'll help me, O oh Lord, that it will. And then the Marcheshes goes on to say, he says, well known, that in our lifetime, is under called what you and I today would call brisker revolution. revolution. It's a new style, I say signon, a new style of learning in the yeshivas. Especially nowadays. And I'm not part of that, he says. I'm from the old generation. We just learned straight. We weren't the briskers. We weren't the shemishkop. We're not telzers. No, none of that stuff. We don't have, you know, tzvei dinim and all that. But we don't have any of that. Those type of chakiras. I'm from the old school. I learned in the old school, and those are the guys who put the seeds in my head and watered the, the plants to grow whatever you have today. 
Mean sure from the time Bosiva told the same pockets of Yosef gives them. So I'm a chip off the old block. I'm not a chip off the new block. Right? Bevoi Hayam, So I'm afraid, he says, that now that I'm publishing my stuff, I'm spreading my stuff out there. That uh, it's fancy words for saying I'm putting my stuff in print. I'm afraid it'll 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 uh, sink. <laughs> it'll go over like a lead balloon with the modern yeshiva guys because it's not in that style. Notice I know the material is good, but I know it's I'm gonna uh, uh, that they won't like the way I'm presenting it because I do it don't do it their way. It's fascinating. And I am afraid that um, what he called it, it won't go over with this uh, with this new element, even though it, the words are, are are really good, like honey. I'm not used to the. Like I say, the brisker mahalos shall we call it that way. I'm from the old school, and I I learned like you know the old old way, straight up, Gemara Rishonim and so forth. Therefore, I am praying at the beginning of publishing this book to the Lord, like Ravava did back in the Gemara. I hope I hope this will hit a home run. <laughs> uh, with the modern yeshiva guys, isn't that isn't that amazing, right? And he goes on to talk about a little personal history and so forth. Now I'll tell you something funny, it, it, and it's true, but right, the uh, macheshes is uh, it's a funny safer actually. Uh, I had my old copy, but I gave it to my son when they published the new edition with the with the block print. It's uh, some of it is shallow and it's not real. It's it's a long dish safer. Let's put it that way. And um, the first part, especially, officially supposed to be uh, Orchayim and the Yerodeh, and the second part is supposed to be Choshim uh, Ezer. But really, there's a lot of Kachim things in there. Uh, I'm just opening up there. Chalukas Lechem, Aponi Bishtei Alechem, Batseris, you know, things like that. Um, but on the other hand, Bidine Rubi Chatseris, Tchumim B'Yom Kippurim. That's a practical case, right? But Chiluk Chatos B'Shabbos Yom Kippur, that's a theoretical case. And so on and so forth. So you find all kind of different. Um, um, Material in there, mainly it's for uh, what's it, I would say you know taking a subject and examining very thoroughly, and sometimes be mechadish. I mean he's always mechadish. I mean sometimes mechadish in the din, but uh, there's a brilliant. Uh, well, before I get to the analysis of it, this became his safer. He published one in 1930, another one in 1935, and this put him on the map. The only reason I'm talking about today is I say marches. People know what I'm talking about. I think now. I don't know, because I'm not in the yeshiva right now. <laughs> I don't know, is Marcheshes hot today or not? But it used to be. I'll tell you something funny. Uh, hmm, my time is running out here. Let me uh, let me end this here and pick it up on another tape. Because I don't want to get stopped in the middle. <clears throat> now, uh, <clears throat> okay, switch the tape. Let me, um, uh, let me put this say that uh, he says over here, it's funny that I hope these words will be accepted in the yeshiva world. Uh, it's a famous, what's the right word? Oral tradition, grapevine, that would, uh, the first of all, it was. But second of all, in Shanghai, this is what I've been told, in Shanghai, when the mirror was there, you know, in the 1940s, 
in Second World War, and they had they were learning up a storm in the very difficult conditions in Shanghai in World War Two, and uh, the long and the short of it is, you know, they had chaburas, and <laughs> this is what I've been told anyway. Uh, so the Bacheshes was always a book. Pages were torn out. <laughs> you get it? What does that mean? A guy had to say a chabur, you're under tremendous pr- pressure. You know, after all, it's a myriad of guys know how to learn. So they, they plagiarize, steal material from the Marcheshes, but anyone nobody knows, they tear out a piece. <laughs> so by the time the war was over, the book was like empty or something like that. Which means he He wanted his words to be find exception in the yeshiva world. It got accepted a funny way. <laughs> you know, they stole all the material, which is, I guess, in a certain sense, the highest form of flattery. Um, I don't know if the story is true, but it could very well be. It's a, it's, it sounds right. If you've ever had to give a chabura, then you'll know the pressure's on. And uh, I don't know. And his book is uh, Heavy Lumbus. Uh, it's not a save for everybody. Um, and uh, to tell you the truth, uh, I myself, when I was thinking about doing this morning, I feel bizchata in the Moscow, and I said, I haven't looked at it enough. Uh, over the years, sometimes I used to do it more or less, uh, because he has very heavy material. The Marches is a safe you have to learn with a in my opinion, you have to learn with a chavrusa, but you could do very well with that. In other words, if you're able to, uh, look, I'm just giving whatever advice I feel like giving. If you're able to, you can make a, if, and you're barahachi, then, and you're willing to look up the sources, Marcheshes is a, is a super thing because he's got all the, first of all, he knows everything, meaning he's a huge bikiyas, a gigantic bikiyas in Shas and in Rishonim especially, in that style. He's not into the Achronim, you know, old school. And it's very Sephardi Yishara. And uh, if you, I'll tell you the truth, I, a lot of times I came across the Marcheshes and I looked it up because I saw it in the articles where I was having He's obviously a big fan of his. Zevin uh, wrote, and only Zevin can do this. He wrote a book review when the book came out, or a little bit later, in the 1930s. So uh, if you get the so from his farm, you see he has a, a wonderful, <laughs> very brilliant book review, in which he says, this is cute, you know, Zevin's always an excellent writer, uh, you know, a very fine uh, writer from the journalistic point of view. He says, usually you hear of parents who are from, and the kids are Moscow. Here you see the other way around. The parents of Moscow and the kids from. Now, he didn't mean the father's not from. He just meant you heard of somebody very often where the father's a big gone and the son was, uh, was on more the Moscow side. Here you have the other way around, which is true. But that's just a shtick, you know what I mean? Uh, by the way, the Marcheshes had children and his sons were obviously more modern, but from. Because someone went to Hildesheimer Seminary. Isn't that interesting? In the 1920s. And uh, there's letters, you know, that he writes. To the Sri Deish, it's in the Sri Deish. You know, Kiel Weinberg, where he said, Please take care of my son. And anyway, I'm broke. They don't pay the Dionym here well. And maybe can help my son out uh, in terms of Gashmias and so forth. And the son became a rabbi doctor in Germany. You know, he's he modern Orthodox. He was from. You know, he got smicha by the Hildesheimer. And then he uh, went and got a doctorate in, um, in a German university, you know, in the Yekisha way. I remember he, he wrote a dissertation on uh, money in the Talmud, and so on and so forth. And he became a macher in the Mizrahi movement in uh, in Lithuania. And, I mean, in Vilna, in that area. Um, so he was a from guy, you know. He wasn't a Marcheshis, but not many people are. And uh, I think this saver made his reputation. You know, this put him on the map. So he had it in him, but till you, you know, but till it got out there, 
And to this day, the Marches is a fantastic work if you're the type. You know, as if you want to get into any uh, 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 uh the ones he deals with. And again, his style is to go, you know, bring from everywhere. Uh, but it very much in, in, in these like short arguments, they're not very long. But it's one built on the other, built on the other, built on the other. He has some shells and shubas there, especially about Aguna cases and things like that. But it's not what you call a regular response in a halacha. He goes very, very deeply into the conceptual side of it. And Rav Zevin said, and I'm not a bucky in the, in the Marcheshes, although after today I should make a business maybe to learn this better with somebody. He's very good looking through the table of contents. And there's a nice edition now with the, with the easier to read print. Um, but it's heavy. You know, it's not something you just breeze through. At least not in my opinion. Um, but, you know, now it's the month of Elam Tishrei, you could do worse. <laughs> if you wouldn't become Talmud Torah, you could, if you could do a Marcheshes. Uh, I remember some the Zemantin gets a lot on the sukkah and the lulav. Um, he has a lot of stuff on that because it lends itself to that. I remember Zevin has something in the mode of Allah. You take a look in the mode of Allah when it comes to sukkah's time where he talks about the schach, uh, something along the lines, you know, that it's, 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 it's a pshat that it has to be gidu, that, uh, let's put it this way, it has to be gidu in the arts or is it a, 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 a puzzle, it can be en gidu in arts and what about love it? You know, that's the kind of thing you in, in the Marcheshi has that kind of hakira. And uh about the about the mikvahs, uh, you know, with 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 uh, with the mikvah in uh, what do you call it in, in uh Shaleg, you know, mikvah made out of uh, uh what do you call it, the snow. Anyway, he brings them from time to time. You see he was a big admirer of his. And if anybody can get a hold, it's online somewhere, I'm sure it is, of the book review by Rosev, and that itself is is a delight. You understand? That itself is a delight. Now I said he was in the Mizrahi. Listen well. After First World War, in the 20s and 30s, the relationship between Mizrahi and the Agoda got really bad. That's what happened. Um, and now comes the democracy versus the aristocracy thing. But here were two people who were very close friends, as I told you before, even though they didn't agree on politics. Especially on, on the Eretz Yisrael business. On design as a business. Now, Abhai Meiser was um, the leading personality, shall we say, in Vilna. But Poland passed a law in the 1920s in which they said, okay, there will be Jewish communities, but then they'll really be democratically elected, which had never happened before, and I don't think it's happened since. Certainly in America, or in Israel, you don't have a situation where people say this, who should be the Rabbonim in the city? <laughs> right? There should be a basin in Baltimore, and every Jew in Baltimore, from and not from, should vote on who should be the base in Baltimore. That's unthinkable. Or in New York. Or Chicago. Or anywhere. But even in Lakewood, the imams would leave it up to a secret ballot of the voters in Lakewood who should be the base in. You might end up with unexpected results. <laughs> right? Yeah. If nobody can tell, it's really a free ballot. And by the way, women can also vote. And so, this created a very unusual situation. And believe you me, there were a lot of big fights. People have written articles on this, of rabbinical uh, elections in Poland in the 20s and 30s as a result of what I just said before. Because democracy hit the fan and, and nobody was used to it. Okay? I repeat, the firm world is not a democratic world. The firm world is what you call aristocratic world, like Plato's Republic. You know, a godel is a godel. Nobody elected him to be a godel. It's just acknowledged. 
And you might say like this, well, I don't hold him to be a gadol. Then they get on you, oh, you don't hold him to be a gadol. You know, they use that kind of tactics. Um, but never put up mamish to a vote. In the Medina Yisrael, there's no such thing like that, right? It's not like the public votes who should be the chief rabbi. That'll be a, it's all up to public vote. Instead, they have, in the state of Israel today, some sort of aristocratic system. They have uh, indirect elections with specially designated electors and all that junk. I'm just telling you, here in Poland, you had something never happened before. And the most famous and controversial of these cases is the rabbinate of Vilna. Because what happened was, in the 1920s, I forget exactly when it was, the later 20s, a law had been passed, and uh, now they're going to vote who should be the Yavbeis in Vilna, the official chief rabbi. At this point, um, the, so Chaim Reiser basically, let's put it this way, the followers of Chaim Reiser, I guess, how can there be even somebody who will compete? Uh, let's be honest, they would say. Who is the God of Ador? In other words, if you're living in Vilna, who person should be the chief rabbi? Now, I didn't say you have to be Shomer Shabbos, and I didn't tell you what to do, but as far as, you know, I'm not interfering in your life, but let's be honest, as far as the person who is most qualified to be the chief rabbi and the Av base and everything like that, in charge of the religious stuff in Vilna, how can you doubt that it's the leading uh, God of the generation? That's the father of Chaim Meiser. On the other hand, the public didn't see it that way. Now you can say like this, the public is stupid, the masses are asses. I get it. But this was the exact point. That's what makes it so fascinating. The clash between the two ideals of democracy and aristocracy. The aristocracy argument goes like this. Only those who are cognoscenti should be able to uh, express an opinion on subject. You can have this in America also. I remember Winston Churchill wrote once that, you know, in his opinion, even though he was a Democrat, he was, but he says in his opinion, maybe he wrote this whimsically, there should be something called the political classes. These are the people who are politically engaged. They read all the papers. They read all the magazines. They follow up all this stuff close and low. And they shouldn't be the one to vote for president because they're holding in the power show. Not the average idiot out there who is a drunk and just watches a ball game. And then four years, he's supposed to elect the president of the United States who could affect the guns of the future. You know what I mean? That's the aristocratic argument. The other argument is people are people. Everybody's got equal rights. Democracy. The demos. To make a long story short, uh, to the horror of the followers of Heimweiser, who we today would call the Agudaniks, the non-Agudatypes, so I guess we don't want him as a candidate. We'd rather get somebody else. And they supported Rabbi Rubenstein, who I mentioned before. He had been under the Tsar, the official chief rabbi. He, had, he was a big macher in the Mizrahi. He proved his worth in the First World War by literally saving the lives and families of many people. Big mysterious snapshots to himself. No question about it. He was a very impressive person. He learned Polish. He was in the, in the Senate. He was a senator in Poland. So he was a very impressive figure, and he's the type of guy who would make a very good, uh, I'll use the word Jonathan Sachs, you know what I'm saying, now he's a very good chief rabbi in, from, the, from the public perspective, they're very eloquent and all the rest of it, and he should be the, he should be the chief rabbi. Now, the counter-argument was like this, Jonathan Sachs, say what you want, but Chaimaiser Grzynski, <laughs> how can you, it's a different universe, Chaimaiser is a different universe, I understand that, but I'm talking about the democratic Way of looking at things. What did the Hamun Am say? So uh, I'm I'm raising a very interesting question. Who's a gadol? You know how does how does the public understand who a gadol is? In my time, we said Moshe Feinstein was the gadol ador. Fine. The ninety five percent, ninety nine percent of the people out there who said Moshe Feinstein gadol ador 
Are they in a position to judge? You know what I'm saying? Did they ever read Igris Moshe? Are they able to say, oh, now I'm comparing Igris Moshe with some other safer all the rest of it? They just heard by word of mouth. You know what I'm saying? The average, you tell somebody, the, the Nod of Yehuda was a Godlador. Have you read the Nod of Yehuda, the Tzlach? Do you see my point? Now, how's the public know? Ordinarily, who cares? Here it was a matter of a vote. And so, make a long story short, Chaim Ozu lost the election. Right? It was a scandal, Shane Kamoho. The Chavitz Chaim, who was in his late 90s, was really blew up. He came to Vilna uh, on a bus. It's famous. He set up in a hotel that he said, I'm going to be campaign manager. He published a daily newspaper in which the Fashvarts, the Prime, he said all this bad stuff about the other side. And of course, the other side goes, Oh, the Chavitz Chaim, you're Mr. Loshanara. Now you're doing Loshanara. And the Chavitz Chaim goes, so Guys like you, it's a mitzvah to do Loshanara. Read my saber. <laughs> you know, and it got very bitter. Very bitter. And uh, Rubenstein won. Okay? So basically, a lot had to do with the Zionism, anti-Zionism business. The public in Vilna, by and large, certainly the non-from, and even among the from, was pro-Zionist. Okay? The Agoda types, especially militantly anti-Zionist, was a minority. Vilna was not a Hasidic town. Had there been Hasidic masses, that's the ones who, pro- who provided the, the masses for the Agoda in the 1920s and 30s in Poland. If this were in Galicia, it would be a different story. You know, the Gare Rebbe or the Belzer Rebbe gives orders, and that's it. It wasn't like that. This is Vilna. And so the, these are not Hasidim. And not Hasidim don't have a tradition of a Rebbe. You understand? Uh, in the yeshiva world, there is something of this nowadays. So people say, oh, Bechaim Kanyevsky is like, you know, if he says it, that's it. But our grandparents weren't like that. People say this Rechaim Moshe is a big Tamachacham, no question in the world. But I don't agree with him on this and any of that, that, like Moshe Rabbeinu, you know? That's how it was over there. Well, this was a bitter business. And um, it put our hero in a very bad spot. Because he was a big Mizrahi guy, but the other day he's close to Rechaim Moshe. Uh, what is it? And he supported Rechaim Moshe, no question about it. And uh, they say, I've seen, I've heard, that as a result of this, he wrote a public letter, this is something from Mizrahi, or something along those lines. You know, I don't think it's true, because in the 1930s, he was still on the uh, Mizrahi uh, board directors, whatever. But let's put it this way. He strongly condemned uh, the election of the other guy. Uh, because, uh, polit- like I said before, politics aside, how can anybody imagine somebody should be the chief of in Vilna, besides Rechaim Meiser, you know, politics aside, how can it? It's like you're talking, right? So I'm sure it's put him in a very, very bad spot, and he uh, very strongly supported Rechaim Meiser. I'll tell you right now, when the election was over, this is just very interesting. When the election was over, the feelings were very bitter from the Haredim, which you can understand, and um, the, I mean, very bitter, and. Uh, Democracy is based on the Yisod. Listen closely. Democracy is based on the Yisod that the Miyot is willing to accept the, 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 the decision of the Rove. Of course, tomorrow we might be in the, uh, the Rove. Right? The, 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 the whole Messias of democracy lies in the willingness of the minority to accept the, 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 the thing of the majority. That's the whole meaning of democracy. If you can't, get, so it's a certain consensus. If you push too far, which is happening in America now, if you push too far, you kind of undermine the democracy because the minority doesn't want to go along. 
So you got to keep things within a, a, some sort of a middle range. It could be to the right of the middle, to the left of the middle. It's got to keep a middle range. If you push too far, then you break it. And um, I think we all know that's what happened in Germany in many places in the time of St. Cyril He said the majority of the reform pushed too far. Therefore, we break the community. We make our own separate Austrian community and make our own separate Kehillah. That became an article of faith with Hirsch and the others, right? As you know. In Vilna and Eastern Europe, they didn't like that. They figured all the Jews should be together in one Kehillah. And so it's very interesting that after the majority won the election and Chaim Meiser lost, the, the winners basically said, okay, how can we make this right? You know what I'm saying? How can we make this right? And, you know, even though they say you can't make it right, but what they ended up doing was preserving, I would say, the status quo. The Hainu, the Rabbi Rubenstein was the Rav Mitam, and Chaim Meiser was the Rav Lamaisa. Even though Rabbi Rubenstein had been Mamish democratically elected with a big majority, no, no question about it. But he himself said, that, look, I'm not Rechaim Meiser. And uh, they worked out an uncomfortable modus vivendi. You know what I'm saying? And what it really boiled down to was what I just said. That Klape Chutz, dealing with the government and all that kind of stuff, Rabbi Rubenstein will be there, especially if it comes to making speeches and whatever. He was a guns fine Talmud but he's not in the same world as our two heroes today. <laughs> not in the same league. When it comes to running the basin and that sort of thing, so that's, a, you know, the series from Chaim Meiser. And so the Mahesha was able to survive in his position without resigning under those circumstances. You know, because otherwise, I think he would, if Chaim Meiser would have resigned, which uh, he was thinking of doing, then the Mahesha would have had to. He just would have had to. And that would have been a messy business. This way, nobody resigned. And the election, election, you know, like that. And, you know, the public has spoken and had a heck with them. And they kind of rebuilt what was there before. And this is what remained in the last 10 years up to Hitler. You know, from 1929 to 39. This is kind of like how it remained. Uh, it was an interesting situation. So, uh, I repeat. You know, Macheshes, I've seen in some places they say he, you know, he said to Mizrahi, is it bankrupt and this and that and the other? I, 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 have, I looked at it. I never found any documents like that. I think it's more wishful thinking. But I don't know. You know I don't know. I, I know that this obviously put him in, in, in an exquisitely uncomfortable situation. Uh, in 1930, he published the Makesha. In 1935, he published the second volume. Here's somebody in his 60s and 70s. Right? He was born in 1864. So he turned 70 in 1934. Uh, to his old man, uh, he was part and parcel of the firm world. You can see a lot of photos, by the way. If you're interested, you want to see a picture of Marcheshes, you go online, just Google the Marcheshes and Rabarch Bear. You know, they're hanging out together in those summer camps that they used to do, you know, outside of Vilna and so forth. Um, again, his safer wasn't written in the classic Yeshiva style, the Briskers or the, or the uh, what do you call it, Roshimah's Cup. But, you know, it stands on its own. And uh, I think even today, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a classic, right? Again, I'm saying, you know, listen, everybody's got a busy life. I got mine, you've got yours. Especially people in Israel, whatever. It'd be very interesting to make a Seder with somebody, but you have to do a lot of looking up. That's the thing. You've got to do a lot of looking up because he moves from, from one uh, sugya to, I mean, one gemar to another gemar, one rishon to another rishon. You know, he's, he's uh, amazing. So you got to do a lot of homework to follow him through. But if you made it with a chavrusa, I think it, it, I think you'd uh, really like it.
Yeah, let's put it that way. Uh, Rav Zevin said, I remember this, he said that he's Meiri Hora, which I thought was very interesting. When it comes to being Chadish Svaras, he's very daring. When it comes to actually poskening, he's Meiri Hora, which is interesting because he was a dying in Vilna, but maybe that's why he realized uh, it's not so simple to, to posken in a book. Do you hear what I'm saying? L- let me put it this way. He didn't write, but she could have written. This is just interesting. He could have written a classic work of responsa. Right? Shalos uh, and Tubas Plain and simple. Because as a dying in Vilna, he got a million Shalos. And all kind of Shalos. And he has some Aguna questions, for example, in the Marcheshes. He has some. So, if he wanted to, he could have become famous that way. Uh, and, uh, and listen, for all I know, the Holocaust came. Maybe he would have done that at the end of his life. I don't know. But it's not. It's just interesting. It's not what he chose to do. So it's ironic. Here's somebody who was a uh, dying in Vilna, but mainly spent his time in the Lumbus. It, 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 it's kind of interesting in that way. You would have thought the other way around. Uh, I mean, Rabbi Meiser, for example, towards the end of his life, wrote the um, Achiezer, as we know, which are shalos and tubas. There are plenty Lumbus, but they're shalos and tubas. Here, uh, he he did something in between. The Marcheshes is like a halfway between a regular responsa safer and a chidushi lamdisha safer. Well, what can I tell you? It is what it is. If, you, if you're interested in what I'm saying today, you'll look it up yourself. You'll understand. The end was bad news, obviously, because he's in Vilna. Vilna was occupied by the communists in 1940 and then by the Germans in 41. The, the Germans came in and they beat him to death. Sometime around now, sometime in September. Some people give you this date, some people give you that date. There were 90,000 Jews in Vilna, and little by little, the Germans took him out and shot him. And that seems to be what happened with him, except that they, at least the reports I've seen, they beat him up, meaning they beat him to death. Now, the guy was 75, 76 years old, something like that. Uh, so he's an old man. And uh, the Germans, a bunch of moms there, you know. I've seen stories, I don't know if it's true, because sometimes these things sound too good, but it could be true that, you know, when, that when they beat him up and killed him, let I me mean, just think about that, they whacked him over the head. I mean, it's terrible, what I'm saying, right? Uh, he died on big time. Um, and his son, by the way, his son was also killed, the one who was a rabbi doctor uh, with him. And uh, look, this is, this, this is the fate of Lithuanian Jewry. I just did a series on this. So you go on the YouTube channel if you're interested. Here are all the gruesome details. But uh, uh, when the Germans did that, so he basically said, you know, Ashur shave it up, he's something like that. You know, you're just instruments, the hands are bunched long. They say Rav Gustav said that about him. You know, Rav Gustav is also in the basement. I don't know. If that story is true, then it's true. If not, I mean, a 76-year-old man being beaten up probably doesn't talk too much, but I could be totally wrong. Uh, all I know is that, um, you know, he, uh, let's put it this way, that uh, he died a martyr's death, which is very sad. Uh, I, <laughs> I looked once in an article, he said, after Rav Chaim Meiser died, he was recognized as the leading Torah authority in Vilna. Well, duh. Rav Chaim Meiser died after the Russians took over. There was nothing left in Vilna. The whole place is falling apart. Yeah, he was there for a few months between the time Stalin took over and Hitler came in. It's less than a year. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it was terrible times. During those months, all the Yeshivas ran away to Vilna. All kinds of things were happening. But in, in retrospect, it's just a tragedy because in retrospect, everybody gets killed, as, as we all know. And the Germans were very thorough, killed almost everybody in Vilna. 
if you read some of these stories, I mean, even even late in the war, Vilna was liberated by the Russians in '44. Down to the last minute, the Germans were doing bedikas hummus. They went from room to room and with flamethrowers. Not one Jew should survive. It, it's, it's just terrible. So he was one of the kedoshim um, in World War uh, Two. Again, I don't know exactly when, but sometime in El. So the dates are disputed, but who cares? Right? Doesn't matter what day the Germans murdered him, does it? Uh, the only thing we can say for him is he had the good fortune to get a safer published. What would have happened if he would have said, I'll, I'll keep one, you know, later? Uh, nobody would know. I would say, there was a guy named Gagas who was a dying in Vilna, you know, like, what does that mean to you? Because of Marchesh, I put him on the map. And um, with that, I'll conclude uh, because you, but I, I just end by saying, here you have a story of a beautiful friendship. Because him, Rokhan Meiser, like I said before, didn't agree on everything, especially in politics. But politics doesn't have to be the, the thing that, that's Kovea, whether you and I are, are friends. To Gedolim, real Gedolim of the spirit, uh, aren't petty. You understand? They're not petty. Uh, the important stuff is, is the Torah part. And anyway, that's just my thoughts on the subject. With that, I bid you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.